sermon series entitled Unstoppable. The church is advancing, and we saw in scripture last week that she will continue to advance, come what may. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, the church of Jesus Christ is unstoppable, and this series of messages is exploring what we must do as the local church to be an effective member of the larger, universal, worldwide, unstoppable body of Christ. Okay, we started off talking about integrity last week and the fact that the church has to operate with integrity if we're going to effectively communicate the gospel to the lost. And today, we're going to talk about being intentional. All right, the church has to be intentional in everything that we do. Otherwise, we become like a ship at sea without any bearing. We can sort of drift around on a party cruise and be entertained and, and comfortable and well-fed, but without a destination, we never get anywhere. Okay, we just drift around aimlessly. So having a purpose, being intentional in everything that we do as the church is crucial to staying on task and not just becoming, as Alan said, like a family-friendly club. Okay, as my kids grow up, they're increasingly given more responsibilities by my wife and I and by their teachers and really by society in general. But there have been times when I've given them a task, a job, right? You give your kids a project to complete, maybe some work around the house, and because their heart isn't necessarily in it, or they just don't feel a sense of purpose in that assignment, they can tend to drift off course, the course that I've placed them on. And it's interesting, if you've had kids, you can almost sit back sometimes and literally watch it happen as they're working. That situation left unchecked, unattended, usually leads to a poorly completed job, doesn't it? Or even an uncompleted job, and it generally will take far longer than it really should. So what happens in that situation? Well, mom and dad step in. You remind your kids of the reason that job needs to be done and needs to be done well. And I've had some version of this conversation many times with my kids, like, hey, son, there has to be some purpose, some intent in your work. If, if all you ever see in your task is the mundane, you know, what seems to be pointless labor, you'll never be motivated or driven to excellence. But if you could just step back and increase your vision a bit and see the greater purpose in everything that you do, you'll find that your work takes on greater meaning, which will lead to greater responsibility, which leads to greater works. Okay? If you want to achieve great things in this life, you have to start by being great at the little things. That's just a fact. And by the way, my kids are great. They, they work hard. But it's a process of learning. We don't just naturally get that. This is true for all of us, isn't it? It's true for the church. For the church to do great things for God, we have to be faithful in the little things. We have to be faithful in the medium things. We have to be faithful in the big things. We must have a purpose, an intent in everything that we do. Jesus said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Luke 16.10, all right? So what specifically does being intentional mean? Well, first, being intentional means being people-focused, not program-focused. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, if you have your Bibles, and we're going to hang out with John today for the rest of this message. We'll, we'll look at a few other passages as well, but we're going to go to John chapter 5. And we'll read verses 2 through 16.
Okay, John 5, 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, and they've excavated this, you know, in modern times. We've had proof of all this, this building, just as it's described. So stop there a minute. The name Bethesda is an Aramaic word that means house of mercy, which was completely appropriate given the state of the people hanging around. Okay, and as a side note, if you're reading the King James Version or uh, many other versions right now, then verse 4 would come next, right after what we just read, and describes an angel coming down and stirring the water so that the first person in the pool, after stirring the water, was healed of their disease. Although that's included in some of the early manuscripts, verse 4 is actually not in the earliest manuscripts that we have today. So you'll notice if you're reading an NIV version, or ESV, which is what I use, it's what Jesus uses, verse (laughs) verse 4 has been omitted and is generally believed not to be a part of Scripture. So your Bible, if you have an NIV, probably goes from verse 3 to verse 5. That's what mine does. Okay. So again, if you're reading the NIV or ESV, you'll, you'll, you'll see that, uh, although verse 4 is usually footnoted at the bottom of the page. The reason I'm mentioning this is so that you don't think we accidentally left verse 4 out or you got a bum copy of the Bible. Okay, That's done there on purpose. And interestingly enough, verse 7 which we're getting to, which is in the earliest manuscripts, goes on to explain that the people at Bethesda expected some type of event like what is described in verse 4. So an angel may have actually come down and stirred the waters. We don't know for sure. But for the sake of scriptural accuracy, I'm leaving out verse 4. It's not included here, okay? So continuing on, verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? That's a strange question to ask someone who's been an invalid for 38 years. It seems to me that's an odd thing. Why would you ask? Certainly he knows, but why would you ask? Do you want to be healed? You know what I think my opinion is? There are people who have maladies, who have circumstances in their lives. Um, There are people who have a victim mentality. They don't want to let go of that. It becomes a security blanket year after year after year, the more, and you almost embrace what is really a sickness in your life. And you know, God doesn't force Himself onto us, He's not going to make us do anything. We have to want, I think, sometimes. To receive, We have to be willing to receive healing from the Lord for him to give it because he's not going to force it into you. So it's interesting to me. He says, do you want to be healed? Right? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. (laughs) Are you kidding me? This guy can't hardly move for 38 years, and as soon as he gets up, all the church people can say is, You can't do that. You're messing up the program. I mean, forget the fact that a human being has just been given complete health after 38 years of sickness. Because we have a program and you're messing it all up. 
Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, the man that said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they said, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? Doesn't matter that Jesus was focused on people. Doesn't matter that God was glorified in deviating from the status quo. Doesn't matter that greater works were accomplished by doing something different than what they'd always done. Because the program, the usual, the norm was getting all messed up. Jesus makes this point further in chapter 7, verses 21 through 24. If you skip over, the Jews are questioning him now during the Feast of Booths, another great program that had become tradition. And Jesus says to them, verse 21, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? He's referring back to the healing of the man at Bethesda. Okay, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So you see these religious people... As a matter of fact, today, religious people are by practice, what? Religious. Religious people are religious. That's a profound statement. And if we're not careful, we become so enamored with religion that we reject anything that messes up our traditions. But sometimes Jesus wants to stir up the waters because he's far more interested in people than he is with our programs. Sometimes we get in our own way and we have to be willing to step back and refocus on Christ and His will, even at the expense of our tradition, our practices and our programs, okay? Many churches today are program focused and to get back on track with the mission that God has set before her, the local church often has to move from being program focused to people focused. We're in a little bit of a different situation here because we're a new fellowship. We just started. We haven't had time yet, I think, to become really entrenched in our program. So maybe this is more of a warning for Upcountry Church than it is a correction. But make no mistake, we are as, a, as susceptible to the lure of programs as anyone. And it's not that programs are bad, by the way. In and of themselves, they can be wonderfully effective tools, vehicles for ministry, but what can and so often does happen in the church is the programs begin to take on a life of their own. And the leaders of those programs become so enamored with the program itself that we begin to elevate the program instead of elevating Jesus. One indicator that church is becoming program focused is when the pastor or a deacon or another leader in the church makes a suggestion or gives a directive that means some kind of change for an existing program. And folks in the program, you can watch them sometimes, they'll become indignant or combative, territorial about their program. I've been in churches as a staff member for years where the pastor would be seeking you know, the Lord for direction and vision for the church. It happens a lot 
in the beginning of a new year. They'll, they'll take 30 days and fast and pray and seek God for direction for the year. For the church, we did that this year. And often God gives direction. That may be a change of direction. It may be a deviation from the course that, that the church has been on. And I've watched people get so upset that actually leave the church fuming because the pastor changed the program. You know, Moses, the Bible says Moses led the congregation in the desert. He had to constantly go back to the Lord and receive new direction, fresh directives, commands from the Lord. It's not like the Lord said, here's what's going to happen for the next 40 years. Take care of it. Moses was in regular communication with God, and God was sometimes changing their course. Right? It was new direction for them, and they had to be willing to follow, and they didn't always. God's plan for his church was being progressively revealed to them through Moses, through the leadership. It's no different today. It's no different for our churches today. God still speaks today. He still directs. He still leads us. We have to be willing to follow him and even change course when necessary, okay? So sometimes that means a change of course. Sometimes he says, keep on keeping on. All right? The key to maintain, to maintaining, a, to main, sorry, the key is to, can't read my own notes, maintain a Jesus-focused perspective. All right, if we're going to be open to whatever God is telling us to do, we have to maintain a Jesus-focused perspective. When everything that we do points to Jesus, our focus is on Him and those He's called us to minister to. When what we do begins to point to whatever it is we're doing, rather than Jesus, our focus shifts to our good deeds. It shifts to our creativity and our hard work, which usually leads to pride and ownership. Okay? Two mindsets that are counter to the call of God for the church because pride and ownership glorify the individual instead of glorifying God. As a musician and someone who's led the music and worship in churches for 20 years, I can tell you that it's easy... It's easy for me to make the church all about the music. It, it's easy for the musicians and singers on a worship team or a praise band to make the church all about playing music. I've had musicians and singers over the years only come to church when they're on the rotation to be on the platform. If they're not scheduled to be on stage on a given Sunday, they stay home. That's usually a good indicator that church has become an outlet for performance for them. And no longer a place for corporate worship with the body of Christ. Whether you're on the stage or not. Whether you're in the pew or serving in the nursery. Whether you're, you know, you're a deacon or an elder or a maintenance man. We come and serve and worship at the pleasure of our king. Whether we're in the spotlight or not, right? We serve at the pleasure of our king. The truth is he's the only one that should ever be in the spotlight. When we come together as the local church, a family, this community of faith, our sole focus must be on the one who is worthy of our worship. Who is that? Is it a program? Is it a great personality in our congregation? Is it a musician? Is it the pastor? I'm convinced beyond the shadow of any doubt, beyond any hint of question, there can only be one. One worthy of our veneration, our admiration. Only one deserving of our ultimate affection. Who is it? 
Who is it? He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. Amos 4.13. When we gather and worship the one true God and nothing else, no one else, we gain perspective, the proper perspective. John 5.19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then John 5.30, again, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That, my friends, is perspective. That comes from being focused on God. All right? And so what comes out of that? When we're focused on God alone, what comes out of that? In addition to to a deeper relationship with him, of course, and each other, we receive our marching orders, our direction, our calling, our mission, our purpose that's focused on others. John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this, his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You see, out of true worship that is focused on God alone, we receive instruction for life that is focused beyond ourselves, to our family in Christ, to each other, and to those outside of this body, those who need Jesus. All right? Programs are a tool. Sometimes we need a saw Sometimes we need a hammer. Sometimes we need a tape measure. Tools make us more effective in getting the job done. But the focus is never the tool, is it? It's what we're building and who we're building it for that we remain focused on. When I build a house for someone, I'm not focused on my truck full of tools. I'm focused on the house, on what it is I'm building. And I'm focused on the customer, the person I'm building it for, right? God is building his church through us. And programs are tools that we use to carry out the work, okay? We must remain people-focused and not program-focused. There's a short story that I want to read to you. You may have heard it before. It's entitled, The Parable of the Life-Saving Station, just to make this point, all right? On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day or night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, and new crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge for those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as sort of a club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired life boat crews to do this work for them. 
The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. Some had skin of a different color. Some spoke a strange language, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal pattern of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the life of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. If you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but now most of the people drown. Hmm. That's, of course, an analogy for the church. It says a lot, doesn't it? It's convicting to me. <clears throat> we must remain intentional by staying focused on people, our mission, not programs, okay? Point two, and I will go through it quickly. Being intentional means making disciples. It's one thing to be focused on people, but what do we do with that focus? The answer is we make disciples. We have to move beyond works of justice. Those are good, but we have to move beyond acts of kindness and even just introducing people to Christ and begin making disciples. To be clear, we need all of the above, okay? But we can't stop there. We need to continue to meet initial needs and then progress beyond that into a process of discipleship with other people. If we're going to see real growth and long-term health in the church, that's what we have to do. Shallow church movements, prosperity gospels, and always tolerant, non-offensive messages that are an inch deep and a mile wide aren't going to cut it in the church anymore. Matter of fact, I'm not sure they've been cutting it all along. We're building bigger churches and more successful organizations, but are we really making disciples of Christ? Certainly some are, by the way. Some are. And I'm by no means criticizing churches for simply being large. Okay, hear me. I hope this church becomes very large one day. I do. But it has to be for the right reasons. You see, the early church was growing like wildfire. It was viral, but for the right reasons. If we're going to continue being a vital, living member of the body of Christ, we're going to have to understand and constantly remind ourselves what it means to be true disciples of Christ and be ever engaged in the ongoing process of making disciples. The gospel is good news. It's the most wonderful message in all of time. And preaching a feel-good message is great. But it's incomplete if that's all we ever teach. Being a disciple of Christ means living a life of sacrifice and servanthood with tremendous joy and peace and love and fulfillment along the way. That's what Jesus taught us. The reward is the good news. The process of living for Christ is a sober challenge that reaps many benefits along the way.
All right? We know that Jesus gave us the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All right? We'll read the rest of that in a moment. But this, when he said this, was after the resurrection after the crucifixion and resurrection, and just before his ascension into heaven, he's gathered his disciples together on a mountain away from all of the daily distractions of life to give some final instructions to his closest confidants. So this is a very important meeting. And what does he say? He tells them to go and make disciples. And then at the end of verse 20, he says, And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Right? So this is obviously a directive. It's a command for all of us as well as he extends the commission to the end of the age. We haven't gotten there yet. So clearly, we are supposed to be engaged in activity as Christ followers that is making disciples of Jesus Christ. So here's a question. What is a disciple? All right, let's jump back to the book of Luke and I'm just going to hurry through. I won't wait for you to turn. It'll be on the screen. Jump back to Luke 14 and we'll read verses 25 through 33. This is a pretty good indication of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. All right, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. That's Jesus. Great crowds accompanied him. We just talked about great crowds, large churches, huge gatherings of people, people that know at the very least, we know that at the very least they had some interest in Jesus, just as we see in verse 25, right? The question I was asking earlier was, are we truly making disciples of Christ or are we just building a bigger and better organization? Because the larger the crowd, and Jesus knew this, the greater the allure of popularity and acceptance. Right? How many men of faith have we seen in our generation alone who have fallen because they've allowed themselves to pander to popularity and success in their ministry? It's not that it can't be done right. It, it, it can be done right, and it has been done right. There are large churches that are very effective. It's just that so often it isn't done right because we become seduced by the voice of masses of people around us telling us how great we are until we become drunk on our own egos. So what does Jesus do when the crowds amass around him? He immediately lets them know what exactly it is they're signing up for. I love it. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned around and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. That's a heavy statement now. To be clear, hating here in this verse is a Semitic expression that means loving less. It doesn't mean hate in the same way that we think of hate today. He's saying that to be a disciple, he has to come first before all these other things, even ourselves, okay? Now, verse 27 is, is a key verse in this passage. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. So you've got this massive crowd around him, easy to get inflated. Think, man, I, you know, this, this is exciting. Jesus turns around and says, let me, let me be clear. Let me just tell you right now what it's going to take if you think you're going to go on this path with me. He's laying it out for him. Verse 28, For which of you desired to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Man, what does it mean to be a disciple? In short, it means walking the same road that Jesus walked. He called people to follow him. Verse 27, again, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus walked a road full of joy and sorrow, full of blessing and hardship. It was full of victory and suffering. Jesus bore a cross for us. He laid down his life for us. Now we're supposed to bear a cross for each other, lay down our lives for one another, live our lives in service and sacrifice to each other. You see, it isn't necessarily a life of hardship, although it can be at times, but it's a life of sacrificial service, which ultimately brings fulfillment and joy and love and peace, the things that we want in our lives. That's walking the road that Jesus walked. That's what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. That video we watched talked about being willing to risk everything for each other, ultimately for Christ. I don't know. I mean, think about that. Do we like each other that much? I'll tell you what. We'd better love each other that much. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And the second question how do we make disciples? We know what they are. How do we do that? I believe that most churches associate making disciples with leading people to a place of faith and repentance, spreading the gospel. That's evangelism, and that is certainly an aspect of making disciples, no question. But I would contend that there is much more to it than that. That there is a greater commitment to making disciples than just evangelizing. Okay, interestingly enough, the verb for make disciples in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is mothetuo, which conveys the idea of a believer who's in the process of learning. A believer who's growing in his faith and in his love for the Lord. Beyond conversion, beyond the moment we experience salvation in Jesus Christ, discipleship is then the ongoing process of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ. Jesus says it best in John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The word abide there means continue. Okay? Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You see, discipleship is not an event. It's a process. You get what I'm saying? It's not a one-time thing. So how then, how do we do that? Let's go back to Matthew 28 and finish reading the Great Commission, starting in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This is referring to water baptism, by the way, not spirit baptism. The, the command was given to us, his disciples, human beings, men and women. We cannot baptize others in the spirit. Only he can do that. Okay, so this is referring to the baptism that we can administer, which is water baptism. There are other places where we're instructed to lay on hands that others may receive the baptism of the Spirit from Him, but this text is specifically referring to water baptism. Water baptism is an outward testimony to the world that we have died, been buried, and resurrected with Christ, which is part of the discipleship process. It should be early on in that walk. 
we who are followers of Christ should all be baptized in water. It's clear in scripture. And I would argue that if you were baptized as a baby or a very young child, you should really experience baptism again, fully understanding what it is that you're testifying to. That's the significance, okay? Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, we can't stop after verse 19 because verse 20 is the rest of the story when it comes to discipleship. It's teaching others all that Jesus commanded us. That isn't a one-time event, far from it. That is a lifelong journey that we're called to share in with others. So let me just, as I'm concluding, take this a step further. And let's just apply it to us right where we are today. If you are a mature Christian, you're actively following Christ and you're not brand new in the faith, there should be at least one person if not more, in your life that you're actively mentoring and discipling in the faith. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you have to be perfect. Okay? I, I get that from people. I can't. I'm not in a position to mentor someone too much in my life. Listen, the disciples who were closest to Jesus, after years of walking with him, seeing all the miracles... All the late night talks around the fire. Can you imagine all the instruction personally from Jesus? All the relationship that they had with him. After all of that, when the pressure was on, what did they do? They bolted. They, They abandoned him. They ran away. Matthew 26, starting at verse 55. Jesus was being arrested and he said to the crowds who came after him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And then what happened? Jesus denied, or Peter denied Jesus three times, right? You see, even his closest disciples were far from perfect. Yet they, if you look at what they went on to accomplish, establishing the church discipling so many people, building up the church in the midst of the worst persecution ever, wrote the inspired scriptures, changed the world forever. You don't have to be perfect to disciple someone else. You simply have to be willing and make yourself available when the Lord sends someone into your path. And believe me, he will. Okay? One of my favorite parts of being a pastor is the opportunity I have to disciple other people. I love it. I love the journey of seeing others mature in the faith. But the reality for me is there are only so many hours in the day, and I'm one person. I can realistically only disciple a fixed amount of people at any given time. It's the same for all of us. So what I'm doing here today, teaching and leading, is an aspect of discipleship, but I'm talking about spending time one-on-one with a few at most sharing in the journey of discipleship. Making disciples so that they in turn will go out and make disciples. If this church is going to be intentional, we have to be focused on people and engaged in the process of making disciples. I can't do that alone. It can't all come from the pulpit. It can't all come from me. I need you to come alongside of me and engage in this ministry. I need you to be sensitive to the people around you. God will put people in front of you for you to disciple. You just have to be aware 
and be willing, okay? And if you're in a place in life where your faith is faltering, maybe your heart is questioning, your commitment is failing, let me tell you something. Listen, you will not make it unless you enter into a relationship where you're submitted to someone who you can trust that is mature in the faith. In fact, that, that really applies to all of us. I have men in my life right now who are older and more mature in the faith who mentor me on a regular basis to this day. If you think you're an island unto yourself, you're mistaken. And you will fall short of any measurable accomplishment for Christ in this life as long as you try to keep up this journey alone. That's a fact. That's why we have the church. To strengthen and encourage and, and build up and equip and mentor and disciple one another. You simply cannot live a successful life devoted to Christ in isolation from other believers. It will not happen. I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. I get it. I'm just telling you, it won't happen. For those that exclude themselves from the fellowship, whether we like it or not, we need each other. So let's be there for each other, okay? Let's be there for each other. Can we, can we commit to that today? Can we do that? We're off to a great start. This is a great start. I want us to be intentional in everything that we do. But we'll never get beyond this point if we allow it to become like the little life-saving station that grew and became a club. We have to continue to reach out. We have to make disciples. You have to make disciples. I have to make disciples. I'm not building this church. The Lord is building this church. I'm just a tool in His hand. So are you. You have to be open and sensitive you have to be willing to talk to people outside of these walls to bring people in, to build this church so we can become a great, big, fancy building. No. Not at all. I, I hope we have to knock a wall down and put up a tarp to fit the people in. I don't care. I just want people to come to Christ, to be discipled, to make more disciples. I hope we can't fit them all in the building. Whatever, whatever it means, Right? When we take our eyes off of ourselves and cast our gaze upon the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, when, when we attune our ears to the voice of truth at the exclusion of all others and open our heart to the only one worthy of filling it, we enter into the ultimate journey of discipleship, walking with Jesus, following him, his example and no other. That is what I intend to do. That's what it means to be intentional. So I'm asking you, what do you intend to do? David said, I follow hard after thee. My soul follows hard after thee. Are you willing and prepared to make disciples and allow yourself to be discipled? Only you can answer that. Do you, do you trust him in that? Can you trust him in that? Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life 
the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I want to tell you, this is where I'm placing all my trust. I'm putting all of my eggs in that one basket right there. I'm trusting in the Lord. How about you? How about you? Can we commit today to making disciples? I'm asking you. Can we commit? You answer that question. It's between you and God, really. But I'm asking you to ask the question and answer it to the Lord. Because ultimately, this is what he's telling me to ask you. Are we going to move beyond a better organization and build the kingdom of God with him? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to be intentional in everything that we do, in every decision, in every relationship, in every path that we choose to take. We commit ourselves today to staying focused on you, on your people, and and on those around us who don't know you. We commit to do more than just show up and enjoy your presence in this nice building. We commit to engage in life with others to mentor and to be mentored when it's great and when it gets really messy. Uh, 